You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Okay, well, welcome everyone to season three, episode five of the Together in Literacy podcast. I'm here with the fantastic Casey Harrison. Hi, Casey. Hi, Emily. <laughs> it's Friday. We got a little Friday vibe going on here. Uh, and we are uh, at the time recording. It's November and it's kind of crazy to admit that the holiday season will be uh, upon us. My goodness. Um, still got a lot of Halloween candy lying around though. I don't know about you, Casey. Oh my goodness. We got a lot of that though. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to kick off as we always do with some feedback from one of our listeners. And it's always so appreciated because we know we're just getting that word out to everyone and, and just love that you're enjoying these episodes. This is from Teresa Murray and it's called What a Dynamic Duo. Oh, I think we need capes for this one, Casey. <laughs> <laughs> Emily and Casey are a dynamic duo who inspire me each and every time I listen to them. Growing teacher knowledge is the single most important thing we can do for students. Emily and Casey confirm, remind, and extend my knowledge. I feel as if I am better for the teachers and students with whom I work with because of Together in Literacy. Big capital letters. Thank you. Wow. Teresa, thank you. That is uh, such a glowing um, little feedback that you have sent us. And we just so appreciate that you're able to um, extend your learning into the classroom after listening to our episodes. And we wish that for everybody that listens. So um, once again, thank you. And we're so grateful and uh, proud that we're uh, inspiring you each and every time you listen. Absolutely. If you would like to leave us a, uh, some feedback and a rating, we would love that so that not only we can, can we read it and, and just be so, so heartwarmed by it, but we'd love to share it in a future episode. So please do that. You can always find us on togetherinliteracy.com. Well, today we are going to continue our journey with an amazing guest in just a minute, but it is a commitment once again to the structure of this podcast, and that is to discuss and speak to the whole child, to be able to reach not only educators, but also families and bridge those two together mm -hmm. and to share stories stories of 
real life journeys with dyslexia so that you can feel inspired by them and uh, perhaps feel like you're encouraged or maybe get some questions answered. We have always been inspired by our previous guests who have shared their dyslexia stories. We had, uh, we had, let's see, back in season one, we had Hope. And then last season we had was Ryan. And we now have a um, wonderful guest and her name is Erica Lopez. And I'll uh, have Erica introduce herself in just a minute. But before we do, I'd like to just share a little bit about Erica. So Erica was raised in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. by her mother, an immigrant from Guatemala. She attended high school in Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia, and then college at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. She started her career in finance in Washington, D.C., but realized the thing she liked discussing most with her clients was their philanthropic vision and plan. So she left finance to work in the nonprofit industry for the next 12 years. Erica married her wonderful husband, Len, and together they welcomed a son and then a daughter. And the family has moved to North Carolina and has been there. Now, about five years ago, Erica began writing a memoir and essays based on her childhood experiences and began sharing her writings on a blog she named Landings. This year, this is very exciting, Erica released her very first book. It's called The Adventures of Amazing Grace. The Adventures of Amazing Grace is a children's chapter book she created with her daughter. She is thrilled to be living a creative life and encourages everyone to use their gifts in their own way to make an impact in this world. Well, Erica is going to share with us today about her book, but also her journey with dyslexia. So Erica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Emily. I just am so thrilled to be with you and Casey today. It has been a journey with dyslexia and it's been a ride for sure, but listening to your podcast has been incredibly helpful for me as a parent. So I just want to thank you both for having this podcast and now for welcoming me to share a little bit more about myself and my journey um, with you both and with your listeners. So thank you so much. Oh, yes. Thanks. Oh, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start off with some questions. And why don't you share a little bit about your journey into dyslexia with your daughter and family? Sure. So um, as you mentioned in my bio, um, I had first a son and um, everything was pretty typical in his learning, real bright, reading came easily to him, always gravitated to books. Absolutely. Um, just loved, loved, loved everything academic and reading. And then we had a daughter and things were just different right from the get-go. We just noticed that there were differences between them and, and um, the way that they processed information. And at a young age, they were both in Montessori school for a while. And, um, one of the Montessori preschool teachers, when she was three years old, um, brought us in for a typical teacher conference and said, you know, this isn't a red flag, but it's a yellow flag. It's something that I want to keep an eye on, but there's just something about the processing of 
letters for her that seems to be really challenging. And in Montessori, they use sandpaper letters um, to trace and draw the letters. And, you know, there is a lot of focus on um, letter recognition and blending sounds already at a very young age. And so we had already noticed it at home and to hear this teacher share that with us was like, okay, this is validating. We definitely noticed that there was something different. Um, but we did transition to a traditional school system um, for kindergarten and beyond. And there, I think it was just um, more difficult for the teacher to give individualized attention. It was a large kindergarten class um, that year and for kindergarten and first grade. We tried to have those conversations of what might be happening um, as far as, you know, our daughter and processing and reading and everything was she's reading on grade level. She's doing just fine. It was very much that, you know, she is just a different girl than your son and you, she's just not as academically inclined and everything is just fine. She is average. <laughs> um, so, you know, we still had that feeling that gut feeling that there was something going on. Um, but then COVID hit. And so you both know, everyone knows um, how disruptive that was um, to everyone and, and to children, especially at the time she was in second grade, first to second grade. And so, you know, everything just kind of stopped at that point. I felt like just, you know, survival for everybody. Uh, we did a stint of homeschooling or virtual learning yeah. That was a nightmare. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone was just trying to keep on keeping on at that point, just yeah. to survive, really. Um, and, you know, the the work just became more and more frustrating to her. And we were, of course, frustrated by the setup of homeschool, everything like that. Um, when she got back to school, to regular in-person school, um, there was more of that trying to kind of raise things um with teachers and and more screening that they were able to do in the school system. That was kind of a pre-screening for any kind of learning disabilities and everything came back fine. Um, so, but we finally decided to go with our gut and um, we signed on to do independent testing outside of the school system. And um, in our town in Charlotte, that meant a six month wait. <laughs> Um, so now we're at the end of the summer after third grade. And so she does her, you know, six hours or so of cumulative testing with two different um, psychiatrists that did the testing on her. Yeah. And um, we learned at the beginning of that school year, um, the report came in and, and we sat down with the, the woman to process the report and learn that Sophia was both dyslexic and dysgraphic. Um, so, you know, it's a whirlwind, like it's such an emotional time to, to be handed a diagnosis or two. Um, and, you know, there was just that immediate guilt, um, feeling as a parent that we hadn't caught it sooner, um, that she was old for this kind of diagnosis and that we had lost a lot of time. Um, there was of course the emotionality of what is this going to mean for her and her future? you know, what does her life now look like? Um, but there was also some relief, right? So suddenly there was a name, there was a reason for what had been challenging to her. 
and we hadn't been imagining it. And it wasn't that she was just not trying hard enough. It wasn't that she just needed to lean into it more. You know, all of these things that we had been told over the years, this was an actual learning disability. Um, so there was some some relief, you know, but um, it was, it was very overwhelming and, um, and very emotional. And so um, lots to process right away, right? So you're trying to understand the technical aspects of the report and all of this terminology that's very foreign. And I have to say the, the woman, the doctor that worked with us was incredibly patient and thorough and made herself very available for questions. Um, but you feel behind. And so you immediately are on full research mode. Um, at the time, I was thankfully working part-time. And so I was able to really lean into this and dedicate the time to learning about dyslexia, learning about dysgraphia. That one kind of took a backseat because I felt like dyslexia was the, the bigger um, the bigger nut to crack. Um, and, you know, just what we needed to do to help support her. Um, we also immediately had that question of how do we break the news to her and how do we tell her about her own diagnosis? Yeah. Um, and our daughter is very much a questioner, um, which now we know is one of the many beautiful gifts of dyslexia. She asked and has always asked a ton of questions. Nothing has ever been above her head. That was always a funny thing growing up where people are like, oh, that just goes above their head. We're like, nothing is above her. <laughs> she asks questions and notices everything. Um, so that. we didn't want to go to her with this diagnosis when we were still reeling from it and feeling kind of scared and unarmed and like we were on our back foot. And so knowing that she would have a ton of questions you know, we felt like we needed to get ourselves really geared up to have that conversation with her where she would have a better sense of what life would look like for her in the immediate sense of what that would mean at school. You know, how can she tell her friends about it? That kind of thing. Um, so we did wait a few weeks until we were able to gather together her team at school. So her teachers, the guidance counselor, the person that was in charge of, you know, helping anybody with special needs yeah. at the school. So, um, so we kind of got together a plan. We are, it was a parochial school. So we did not have an IEP system. We had an accommodations plan. And so, you know, working with the school and trying to understand what that should look like um, and building the team around Sophia to, to really be able to gear her up to have some success at school but just, you know, the amount of time that that really took to get everybody on the same page, and especially to get me and my husband, you know, to a place where we could advocate for her because we would know enough to what to ask for. So lots of leaning into this, you know, so we finally did, we shared it with her. I think she had kind of the same feelings of relief a little bit, tons of questions, just as we expected, you know, some of those heartbreaking things of like, does that mean I'm stupid? Does that mean I'm never going to be smart or, you know, things like that that are just so heartbreaking to hear your child saying those things. But thankfully, having had enough information at that point to be able to say, no, not like this is a learning disability. The world is set up to teach people in a way that most people learn but you learn differently. It doesn't mean that you can't learn. It doesn't mean that you don't want to learn. 
It's just that you learn differently and the traditional school system's not set up for the way that your brilliant mind works. So yeah. we're going to have to use a lot of special help and special tools to help you learn, you know, just, just like everyone else, but it's going to look a little bit different. So it took some time to come up with that kind of terminology and be able to help her in that way, because I was still trying to understand it worse myself. And then um, trying to get a tutor, that was its own ride. Um, so every tutor that was listed on the report um, as, you know, part of the huge list of resources and things to learn about dyslexia and Orton-Gillingham, learning all of that, that whole world, levels of certification, different kinds of certification. Um, every single one of those tutors was booked out, you know, months, if not, like just not taking new students on at all. And so, you know, it became this web. I mean, I have these spreadsheets from what I would, you know, call someone, they would recommend somebody else. That person was full up and said they'd recommend three other people. I mean, Wow. It was, um, it was, it was a full-time job for a while. Um, but thankfully we did find this incredible woman, um, that was just the right fit for our family and for my daughter. And so, you know, that piece too, just the, the emotional part of it, it had to be somebody that was going to be able to connect with her on an emotional level and make her feel nurtured and not judged and, she already hated schoolwork. So the idea of doing more schoolwork after school was not very exciting for her. Yeah. Um, and so it had to be somebody that she actually enjoyed spending time with. And thank God for this woman, Mindy, um, who really was, you know, just an angel. She just came yeah. in and gave that energy um, to my daughter that made it feel like we're going to, we're going to work on this together. And it's going to be maybe not the funnest hour that we spend, but it's going to be something that is not too hard. It's, it, you know, we're going to take it easy. We're going to, you know, just tackle things one at a time. And she did, she, she just made it very doable for my daughter. Um, so incredibly grateful for her. Um, so because she was already in fourth grade, we felt pretty behind in the process of remediation, of getting her the Orton-Gillingham work that she needed to go back and kind of relearn the science of learning, which is, you know, something I know now, but had no idea about at the time. And so we did decide to apply to and, and go to a school that's actually for learning for language-based, language-based disabilities, um, children with learning-based disabilities. And so she is there now for her fifth grade year. It's been a really hard transition emotionally to have to leave her school and to go to this new place. Uh, a lot of those same questions have kind of come up of, you know, why does this have to happen? And is it because this, or is it because that, but fifth grade was the last year that they do any kind of Orton Gillingham remediation at this school. And they do full OG based learning in all of the subjects, including math, which is an area that she had struggled with as well. So we decided to go full in. And so she's there this year. I think academically, it's amazing. I think that it's just a hard toll for her emotionally, but she's doing it. She's doing it. And we're just trying to be really, really big on supporting the whole child and making sure she feels like she has a team around her of people that care about her and are cheering for her. So that was the other piece, just really wanting her to learn how to advocate for herself if and when she returns to the mainstream school system, 
um, know how she learns what she needs to do well and be able to ask for it. And then just that confidence building again, because I think that it really had taken a big hit throughout, you know, the last few years of her struggling academically. So she's there now. And we're really hopeful. We're waiting for our first teacher conferences. They do something called levels of independence alongside kind of showing her work. Mm-hmm. And so it's a neat way to look at, you know, how much scaffolding, how much support is any student using to get the grades that they're getting or to get, you know, attain kind of like what what they're attaining as far as academic success. So an A student could need tons of scaffolding, so maybe not so ready to launch back into mainstream school versus somebody that's getting a solid B and entirely doing it on their own, right? So we're we're excited to hear more at these first set of conferences, but we're already seeing a lot from Mindy's work with her last year, just a huge jump in the kind of fluency and the level of books that she's choosing for herself, because we're very much in that phase of you know, going to the to the easier, you know, Junie B. Jones, even as a third, you know, those things that felt easy for her and she enjoyed them, which is great. But, you know, wanting her to read more grade level work. So right now she's reading The Diary of Anne Frank, which is pretty shocking jump. <laughs> so I think that's a huge win. So that's a little bit about her. It's it's definitely been a journey and we're still very much on it, you know, just a, a year in or so since the diagnosis, but still learning every day, still, you know, having to lean into this every day and remember to advocate and to remember to keep my my own skills and my own learning about what dyslexia means and dysgraphia. I mean, I was just looking at her report again the other day. And I was noticing things that completely missed the first time, the second time, the 10th time that I read it, because I was so focused on the dyslexia that I couldn't even process at the time some of the other things that came out of the report, right? So it'll be a lifetime of learning, but now we're in it together, so. Absolutely. Well, Erica, I really, I just appreciate your transparency and your authenticity and sharing that journey that you're on with us, you really laid out just such a beautiful roadmap for families in terms of all of the different emotions and all the things that come with seeking testing and then finding out, okay, what do we do with that testing? And then how do we communicate that? And the fact that you guys have built a team approach for your daughter and are really supporting her, not just in the academics, but in really honoring her whole journey so that she can truly understand what dyslexia is and not have that define her, but just understand that it's part of her. So I just want to thank you for sharing that with families, because I think it's a lot to take in. And I think sometimes that maybe can be forgotten or perhaps not understood as far as the impact that it has on our families. And so You kind of talked about trusting your gut, which we, Emily and I talk about a lot. Most of the families that come to us, they say like, well, you know, we saw some things in kinder or pre-K or first grade and we had wonderings about. And so thinking, you know, kind of along those lines, and I think you, you gave so much advice to parents already, but is there any other little piece of advice that you would give to parents on their journey with kind of as they're sort of approaching dyslexia? Sure. Most of the things that I'll say (laughs) have been 
hard fought and hard won and I've I've learned it the hard way. So please learn from my mistakes and my missteps. But no, I, I do think it, it can be a very lonely place to be initially. And so just making sure that you have a support system around you yeah. as a parent, I think is huge. Thankfully, I had a neighbor that had also had a somewhat late diagnosis for her son. And, you know, that initial just, you know, I've been there, I know what you're going through, you know, here's some initial thoughts on books you might want to read. She brought over um, the Dyslexia Advantage and mm -hmm. um, the other one, the Dyslexia Empowerment Plan, like okay. right away, you know, and just emotionally was there to help support me yeah. through this kind of initial phase of the diagnosis. So reaching out to your support network, I think, and making sure that you don't feel like this is some secret or some, you know, we didn't want to share the diagnosis with my daughter until we had more information. So we had to be very careful about who we shared um, the information with that their kids wouldn't be like, oh, I heard that you're, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it, it can be very siloing and it can make you feel alone. But making sure that you have a few friends that you can really rely on to be there with you through this. And then, you know, if you don't necessarily have somebody within your immediate circle that you can really connect with, there's such great Facebook groups that are local to your area. I found one here in Charlotte that is just a wealth of information as well. And so, again, just, you know, connecting, I think, is a huge thing. You know, there were a lot of emotions around it. And for me, I found a lot of support in my faith. And so I leaned heavily into my faith throughout this journey, which for me, you know, was just incredibly helpful. And it definitely eased the emotional load of this. That was a critical part. And then again, I would just kind of emphasize not making sure not to forget about the socio-emotional side of the, the diagnosis for your child you know, suddenly it was a race, like, oh my gosh, we're so behind. Oh my goodness, we need to line up this kind of amount of tutoring and this, that, and the other. And not forgetting to do things that are fun for them, not forgetting to enjoy your child, not looking at them just through the lens of, oh my gosh, you have this diagnosis now. And so again, a lot of a lot of mistakes made in in this process as well. So please learn from, you know, my missteps as well. But it's big for them and listening in on how they might tell their friends about it or how they're discussing it with their peers. You know, you can get a lot of information from, from how they're talking about their diagnosis with others and how they're feeling about it. So just being attuned to that. And then I would just have to say to have grace with yourself because it can be an emotional roller coaster and something that you may or may not have ever encountered before. And so I know it's easier said than done, but realize yeah. it's not your fault and that, you know, you're just learning as you go. So this one's definitely aspirational for me. There's still a lot of guilt around, you know, how late the diagnosis came, but please for your listeners, may they do a better job at it than <laughs> And then, you know, just using resources that are available these days. If you spend time on social media, then great, like follow the social media handles of things that are just giving you those amazing snippets of information like yours, you know, th this one is just been key in my learning as well. I love Made by Dyslexia, you know, out of England. They just have such 
incredible resources and information. Their recent posts about extraordinary people are just so hopeful and uplifting. And it's something that I actually share with my daughter. They, you know, have these different features of a dyslexic mind and kind of group them into different extraordinary people, storytellers, makers, and entertainers, and questioners. And I can see my daughter in so many of those. And I was sharing them with her and she's like, oh, I'm this and I'm that too. You know, it's like just so neat to see it through a positive lens. And then we used picture books, you know, Ian Slater, illustrator, another one that we actually already had and thankfully just took on a second meeting once we learned the diagnosis, but Just Ask by the Supreme Court Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor. So many differences in children, autism, ADHD, blindness, you know, all of the differences that children can have. And so it's it just makes children, I think, feel less alone in any one of those categories. It's like, you know, children that have all sorts of different special differences. And so this one's yours, but let's look with compassion and empathy at all, at everyone. For me, I had to embrace ear reading as a form of legitimate reading. I had always been somewhat of a snob around, you know, oh, listening to audiobooks isn't really reading until now. And of course, now realizing, of course, if somebody's blind, you are going to read with your fingers. If somebody is dyslexic and dysgraphic, then guess what? You know, listening to books is going to be an easier way to take in the information than reading it with your eyes. So total 180 on that and have to (laughs) eat my words and eat my snobbery about, you know, only sight reading being the only legitimate form. My daughter loves Audible. You know, we had a subscription Audible and, you know, listen to books now endlessly and then podcasts. She loves children's podcasts that she can listen to as well. Smash Boom Best and um, Million Bazillion. Loved it. Listen to that one. Um, (laughs) That's the questioner in her. It's like, what is cryptocurrency? Why, you know, what, why are prices different for things for women than for men? I mean, it's always fun topics. And so she, she loves it. And then I guess, you know, just to keep reading to your child, you know, you kind of feel like, oh, at a certain age, I shouldn't be reading to them anymore. And that one is just one that thankfully I love reading to her. She loves hearing stories read to her. And so just continuing that love of story and books. And so we'll usually do one page mom reads, one page she reads, one page I So just trading off makes it so manageable for her and you know, just one page, you can just do one page, but you know, you know, to like gain some fluency, kind of hear how she's reading, but it it definitely is a way to enjoy books together. Yeah. I love that. You gave an amazing list for our listeners. I know. (laughs) Um, One of my twin boys I know would be totally interested in million bazillion. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to look that one up. (laughs) He's a big questioner too. He also has has a lot of answers. I'm learning alongside. (laughs) I'm picking up stuff. I'm like, Oh, that's what that means. Yeah. Love it. All right. Great suggestions. Such a help. All right. So let's transition a little bit into something even more exciting. This was great too, but such an exciting chapter, if you will. And that is your book, The Adventures of Amazing Grace. So I have the book in my hand right here. Um, What made you want to write a book with your daughter? And can you share a little bit about how this came about? Or 
so I never had an intention to write a book with my daughter, but um, it all started a few years ago when I had a dream. So I had a dream about my late mother who passed away from pancreatic cancer now going on seven years ago. Um, but in this dream, she came to me and we were together and I was jumping over a puddle and I got mid jump and I started hovering and I touched down and I looked back at my mom I'm like, mom, I can fly. And she leapt up. She led me first into this auditorium, this huge auditorium. I have the craziest dreams, but she led me into this auditorium yes. and she leapt up and just started flying high and high and high in this auditorium, flying all around. And then she kind of beckoned me up. She's like, you can do it too. And we flew hand in hand all around this auditorium. It was the most beautiful dream. I was so touched wow. when I woke up. I was just thrilled that my mom came to me in this way and that we flew together in my dreams. And I told the kids about it. I told my husband all about the dream. I was just so moved by it. And so the next night we were getting ready for bed and Sophia asked for a bedtime story. And normally I'm toast by the end of the day. I'm like, pick out a book, I'll read it, you know, whatever you, whatever you want, but please don't make me have any creativity at this point of the night. But inspired by the dream I had just had, I started off and I was like, well, there once was a little girl named, and at the time the, her favorite name for a girl was Grace. So she's like, Grace, her name was Grace. I'm like, okay, there once was a little girl named Grace that could fly. And so we started in on this story and it just started flowing out and she would insert some stuff and I would go on and it just, she was in bed with her covers and I can still picture her little face and her eyes were wide and she was so excited. She was shaking. She's like, tell me more, tell me more. So bedtimes were actually pretty tough those nights because she just wanted the story to continue, but it'd be like, right, right. enough for tonight. So we kept the story going for a couple of weeks. And at some point, Sophia looks at me and she goes, mommy, you need to write this all down. And I'm like, you are absolutely right. I need to write this all down because we just knew we had something special. It was just special. And so she'd go to sleep and I'd race back to my computer and start trying to make the beautiful oral story that we had just told into, you know, a bunch of sentences. And then he said, and then she said, and then they, <laughs> so that clumsy act of actually writing it all out. But I had started writing, you know, after my mom passed away and I was doing a lot of memoir and, you know, stories from my childhood visits to Guatemala. So I had started with a writing group here locally in Charlotte. And so, you know, bringing my writing on a weekly basis and we'd all read to each other and edit and give feedback on each other's work. So I was, had already started doing the actual work of becoming a writer, but this was an entirely different genre. So starting on this children's book, I started writing it down, writing it down. And um, Sophia and her persistence just kept on being like, are you done with it? Have you worked on it? Have you written down the next <laughs> chapter? Where are we in the story? I mean, she was dogged in her pursuit of me getting this thing down on paper to completion. Amazing. And once we finally, you know, kind of put the period on the last sentence of the last chapter, she's like, all right, well let's make it into a real book. Are you going to make it into a real book? I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> so a Word document, my computer isn't enough. <laughs> We're done with this. She's like, no, let's make it into a real book. So I uh, started taking the chapters one by one or two at a time to my writing group. And we worked on it and edited it and really looked at it from, you know, perspective of, okay, you're a third or fourth grader. 
you know, reading the story and, you know, I have these wonderful writers in my class that write crime dramas and beautiful fiction books and all sorts of great stuff. And here we are all putting on our hats of like, okay, now you're a third grader and we're reading this little, this little story. So it was a lot of fun and they were amazing in getting this thing tightened up, but it was also a really neat opportunity to keep working with Sophia. So I would read her back each of the chapters. She would give her critiques. She would listen to it, kind of give her own edits as we went along. So that was all done verbally. It was me reading it back to her. But then we also involved her little friends as beta readers. So once we had kind of a final draft, we printed it out. And so her friends all marked it up and gave their comments too. And so I incorporated those into to drafts as we went along. So we had this little group, this little beta reading group and Sophia that became part of the process of making this thing into a real book. So I was at that you know, crossroads of, do I try to get this thing traditionally published, which I, you know, was hopeful that somebody would just rip it out of my hands and say, this is the next Harry Potter, but that didn't happen. I did put out some queries to agents and some literary agencies, but I was talking to a friend and a great mentor of mine here in Charlotte, Kathy Izzard, and she had self-published a few of her books and just had the path down. She knew exactly the mechanics and the process of self-publishing. And she's like, Erica, if you got a contract today, do you know it would be at least two years until your story was out in the world? Do you want to wait two years? I'm like, Sophia would be a teenager by then and would not even be into this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so let's keep this thing rolling. So I decided to go ahead and self-publish and really put some work into it. So we chose an illustrator together. Sophia helped me choose an illustrator, a woman out of Boston who is also half Guatemalan, like me. So that was a really neat thing. I wanted it to be all Latina um, led. Love it. And uh, Sophia had lots of opinions on what Grace should look like. Everybody at the end of the day was like, oh, she looks exactly like Sophia. <laughs> so our, our main protagonist looks a lot like my daughter. And then, you know, also just the the insides. So how how the interior was laid out. And so this was an interesting point in the conversation because I reached out to a woman that's an interior book designer and she's worked on a lot of really successful middle grade books. And I was telling her that there is Spanish language woven through and that I wanted the Spanish to be in footnotes on the page where you encountered the Spanish because I didn't want kids to have to flip back and forth. This was a book meant for seven to 12 year old readers, but really a, a little bit on the younger side of that, just based on people's reading ability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said, well, you can't do that in the traditional publishing world for children's chapter books for this age. You you don't do footnotes. I'm like, well, it's a good thing I'm self-publishing because I can just do that myself. <laughs> so we're going to do that. So we laid out the footnotes, you know, alongside where you encounter the Spanish. And then the other piece that I worked with her on was that I decided that I wanted to publish the book in a dyslexic friendly format and font. And she had not done that before, but she she was very experienced, you know, layout designer. And so I did some research and found that the British Dyslexia Association had this really fantastic guide on how to publish work in dyslexia-friendly formats and fonts. And so did that, did a lot of research, but that guide really helped in the decision-making process of what this actually would mean and what it would look like in the book. So things like having 
cream paper versus white paper. So it's more jarring eyes to read black print off of white paper than cream paper. Having sans serif fonts, so very clear fonts that don't have any, you know, serifs or anything that would kind of blur the the images together. Short manageable chapters, that was something that I had already baked in with Sophia to make sure that everything kind of had a little bit of a leader at the end. There was always a tease at the end of each chapter that would make a reader want to continue reading into the next chapter. And then things like very technical aspects of letter and line spacing. So how much white space is on a page, how spaced out the lines are between, how spaced out the letters are in between. So everything has been tested through this guide so that it's really the best practices of making the fonts and the and the book text really super readable. So yeah, just looking into it, there just aren't a lot of chapter books, especially that are made for dyslexic friendly. I wanted this book, obviously, with Sophia's diagnosis to go out into the world that way. So yeah, it got to the end of the process, illustration for the cover done, the interior laid out, and then we had a big launch um, in August of this year. And one of our local independent bookstore had a little launch party for us and all our friends and family came out to support. It was fantastic. Sophia was there signing books for folks with, alongside me and just a lot of pride in bringing this thing to completion and also in having this shared project together, literacy for my dyslexic daughter and I was just fantastic. So really just excited to share the story and excited to share the book with other children in the world. I love that. And I have to tell you, I've been reading this with my first grader, with my daughter and at night, and she, she was hooked at like the oh. first, she was like, I love it she has a superpower and she was so <laughs> excited. And then, you know, my, my children attend a school where they um, take Spanish classes throughout the week. And so they loved having the little mariposa, the little butterfly there that linked directly to the Spanish words within the text. I love that you did that. So that kids are oh, so back here. Yeah. It's, that is such a great formatting. So yeah, and it's, I, I really, I'm enjoying it. So thank oh, you. Oh, it's great to hear. So it's mariposas because my mom, my late mom, I felt like she came to me sometimes in key moments in blue butterflies. Like I would just notice blue butterflies would just manifest when there was like a moment that I was missing her, especially, or, you know, just needed kind of her guidance on something. And so you'll see a lot of butterflies throughout the book as well, but that's how we marked all of the footnotes with a little, a little butterfly in the side. Yeah. I love that. And it really links into, you know, Grace and her wanting to fly. So I thought, you know, it really had an <laughs> energy there with those. Oh, I love thanks. the way you became inspired to write this book. That mm -hmm. is such an a incredibly beautiful story and dream. I just got chills listening to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. She's still inspiring me, even from yeah. heaven. <laughs> love it. Love it. Okay. So, next question we'd love to ask is now so you have this just incredible journey to share with both you and your daughter, and then the whole process of publishing the book. What would be one big takeaway that you would want people to get from your book? And maybe not just about the messaging or, you know, any lessons to be learned, but perhaps about dyslexia um, or anything about overcoming obstacles or just being yourself, things like that. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of different themes throughout the book, but one of the biggest ones that I think all kids these days, dyslexic or not, need to hear is that you can overcome fear. I think there's just so much fear, unfortunately, for kids, the amount of information that they're taking in and privy to. It's just, there's a lot of scary stuff, unfortunately, going on in the world. And so fear can be paralyzing, as we know, and just stop all of us from being able to make progress on our goals, on using our gifts and talents. And so this idea of overcoming fear was really something that I wanted to weave throughout the book. And so in the story, Grace overcomes fear at multiple points in her adventures. And um, she draws on wisdom that her mom shares, which is that, you know, fear is just one of the voices that we can listen to. But ultimately, we need to listen to our hearts to decide what we need to do, even if it scares us. So lots of wonderful people have shown that message to me and to Sophia so that I can share it out through this story. But, you know, at the end of the day, Fear is one of the voices alongside many others, and we don't always have to listen to the one that's screaming the loudest in our heads. It can be telling us some good information. It can be keeping us safe. It can be making us aware of things, but we don't always have to just succumb to that one voice. There's other voices that have wisdom in them, and we need to listen to those as well. The second big theme in the book is kind of this discussion and celebration of gifts and talents. So Grace, um, not to ruin it for everybody, it's not a spoiler because you learned this pretty much on the first page is that Grace can fly. And so Grace's parents throughout the book are really supportive of her gift of flight. They help her develop it. The mom teaches her techniques. It's an inherited gift. So the mom can fly as well. They teach each other tricks and ways to fly better, you know, in their backyard. And Grace can turn to her parents when she uses her gifts and things go badly when she makes mistakes. And so, you know, this there's a parallel storyline in where another character in the book um, has a gift, but is shamed by her mother about this special gift and told not to use it, not to speak of it, not to do anything about it. And so in a moment of crisis later in the book, a climactic scene in the book, Grace is super confident in her ability to overcome her fear to help her friend where this other character is kind of paralyzed and and is unable to use her special talents and gifts because, you know, she's been told not to use them. She's been told it's, it's bad and shameful. So, you know, again, in that reading books alongside my daughter, you know, just trying to speak to parents as much as to kids, which is to, you know, meet your kids where they are and celebrate their gifts and talents and help them develop them. You know, even if you might not feel like, you know, like that's something that they can share with the world, it is their gift and talent. And so really helping your kids to develop these, these gifts and talents is is so important. And so, yeah, those are the kind of the two big themes woven throughout the book. And again, you know, just trying to tell a story that might have multiple levels of meaning for kids to get just see it as a fun adventure story but then for their parents and caregivers to also be you know seeing this alongside of them and and maybe learning something it's also a celebration of just having multicultural households it's just really lovely I was in a homeschool group visit the other day with my book which was just adorable I had all these five to eight-year-olds there and they greeted me by screaming for you know my name and they're all holding their little books it was incredible but in the the time that I was signing everyone's books at the end, one of the moms came up to me and um, in Spanish, she said, 
the way that you wove the Spanish throughout the story and just put the put the meaning of the Spanish words in the footnotes was the first time in reading a book that had Spanish in it where it felt like the story was us. It felt like the story was more about us and that we weren't, you know, an after story or an afterthought. It was, it, we, we saw ourselves in the story. And so I just loved the fact that children of different cultures, different multicultural families like ours, just see themselves within the story as well. So that was definitely a work of love with Sophia and just kind of natural and portraying our own family. My mom's from Guatemala. My dad was also an immigrant. Her, Sophia's father, my husband is from Argentina. His, his family is from Argentina. And so, you know, that's woven through there with different foods and culture as well. So just having that as kind of the backdrop of an adventure story as well. You did a beautiful job weaving that in and really bringing the families to life so that children can feel represented. And so I, I love it. And I also love that you took these big themes that are things that we talk about, especially with our students with dyslexia, so that, you know, parents really can have conversations about whatever connection they're making to the book with that theme of fear and then overcoming and identifying those gifts and honoring that. So it's a really beautiful book, Erica. So thank you for sharing with me. Appreciate that. And so you kind of touched a little bit on the fact that you are visiting schools and I've seen this as well on your social media. And I think it's just amazing, but what kind of message do the students that you're visiting with, what are they connecting most with you and the book when you have those visits? Yeah, I did a great visit actually to a school in Atlanta that does serve um, children with dyslexia and other language-based disabilities. And uh, there were fourth and fifth graders and many of them had read the book, but actually most of them hadn't yet. They hadn't ordered books, but they hadn't read them yet. But we walked through kind of how the story came to life and I had one slide that had the editing process, just kind of how, how a story becomes an actual book. And I don't know if the students love this slide so much, but man, did the teachers love it because I went through, it's like, you know, write down the bones of your story, then go back and fill in detail, then edit, and then, you know, read it to yourself, then edit. And, you know, it just went on and on about like how many times it takes and how much, you know, oversight and other people's input, and then, you know, read it to a friend and then edit. And so the teachers love that slide because, you know, obviously I think that for a lot of kids, it's just, I want to get it down on paper and then it's done, turned it in and it's over. And, um, you know, so just kind of beating, beating that horse of like, and then it took me (laughs) more rounds of edits and two years and that's how it became a book. But the very last slide and and something that I want to leave the kids with is just kind of three little visuals and let, you know, I say lessons from grace and um, the first visual is a snowflake. And so of course, you know, every kid knows that every single snowflake is unique, right? That's the thing that they associate with a snowflake. And so, you know, I tell them you are the only person that ever has been and ever will be on this earth that has your specific mix of gifts and talents ever. So it's your job on this earth to use them and develop them, right? And then the next visual is a traffic light. And I say, you know, sometimes fear can feel like this big flashing red light at us, right? It's the loudest voice in the room. It can tell us to stop immediately. But sometimes fear needs to be a yellow light. 
It can tell us to be cautious. It can tell us that, you know, we need to be aware of our surroundings or of situations, but it doesn't always mean that we have to stop. Sometimes we have to go. And then a little heart as the last visual and just ultimately you need to listen to your heart, that deepest voice inside of yourself. That's your truest self to know whether or not to go through with something, whether or not to pursue something, listen to that voice, because that's, that's the truest form of yourself. So those are kind of the three lessons that I leave them with. And I hope that connecting them to, you know, something visual that they can remember is just makes it really, really easy for them to, to remember these lessons from grace. Absolutely. Those sound very powerful. So I'm so glad that you're out there connecting with schools and children. I know you must love to do more of of that part, right? Being able to see the readers and Oh yeah, I absolutely love it. I get so much energy from the kids. They ask the best questions. I mean, they've caught me off guard with things (laughs) and it's it's so challenging in such a cool way. I'll share one brief story if we have time. I don't mean to. But a child, and this was at that school in Atlanta, uh, raised his hand. He goes, do you ever brag about your book? And so immediately I go into, you know, oh gosh, defensive mode. Like, am I bragging? Do they think I'm bragging? Oh gosh. <laughs> and so I just sat still for a moment. And I'm like, don't assume intent. Like, don't go down this road of what you think he means by this. And I asked, I said, well, let me ask this. Do you think I've been up here bragging about the book? And he's like, no, like an immediate, you know, very honest no. And then other kids are shaking their heads and are like, no, no. And I'm like, okay, well, here's the thing. When you do something that you think brings out the best parts of yourself, when you are using your gifts and talents and you think that it brings light into the world, then it's kind of our duty to share about it, to share it out into the world. And that's not bragging. That's just sharing our best self. There's enough darkness in the world, unfortunately, I think that it's up to each of us to share a light to counterbalance that. And so that's different than bragging. For me, I can say with my faith, none of this comes from me. It's coming through me. It's coming through me and my daughter, but we're just kind of the conduits for it to come out into the world. And so it's not bragging about my ability to do this. It's just him using my specific mix of gifts and talents to bring this out into the world. That's lovely. That's so beautiful. Yeah, it's an important message to share with people too. I love that. I wrote down, that's not bragging, it's sharing your best self. Yeah, I love that. I just just wrote it down. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so Erico, it has been uh, such a joy listening mm-hmm. to you um, speak with us today. And I know that our listeners are really going to not only connect with your messaging, but also want to read The Adventures of Amazing Grace. So tell the listeners, how can they connect with you, learn more about your book and perhaps any outreach at schools? How can they, how can they connect with you? Yeah, sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. This has just been such a fun conversation and I just still can't believe that I am on your podcast because this has been such a source of um, (laughs) learning and just so much connection and a feeling of community in this journey this past year. So again, thank you for having me. But yeah, listeners can find me on my website is ericaferrarilopez.com. And on Instagram, I'm always posting about my latest adventures with Grace taking me out into the world. So that's Erica Lopez 
underscore author is my handle. So you can see a lot there. But I also have a little form on my website under author visits where you can put in an inquiry about having me come out to your school. And there's also an email on my website. If you want to just reach out to me directly, I would love to touch base with people. So um, lots of ways to connect with me. And I hope to hear from some of your listeners. Absolutely. have to say that you can, of course, order uh, The Adventures of Amazing Grace on Amazon. It's available on Amazon. It's also available at many independent bookstores, but not all of them yet. So if your bookstore that you love doesn't have it yet, if you could just ask them to carry Grace, I think that would be fantastic and get The Adventures of Amazing Grace into more bookstores around the country. So thank you for that. Yes. And we will be sure to link Erica's handle and website information and all those things here in the show notes as well. So thank you, Erica. It was a beautiful time listening to you. And I just really thank you for sharing your journey with us in so many, so many ways. So for those again, creating a platform where people can share in this because it can be lonely. And so having this community is so important. Thank you again for providing that. Absolutely. We are all about community here. And so if you like the show, we really thank you for listening, for tuning in. And um, if you would, please hit subscribe. And that way you get notifications as to when new podcasts come out. We always have a corresponding blog that comes out as well, where we share information and resources. We do have merchandise. If you want to sport some Together in Literacy uh, shirts, you can find the link there as well. And then we really do love hearing from listeners. So please, if you could leave us a review, if you like the show, we would love to hear from you and maybe read it on the podcast. So as always, you can find Emily and I at our individual websites. Um, I'm at the dyslexiaclassroom.com and Emily is at the literacynest.com. Emily, anything else? Yes. So exciting today. We love having guests and just hearing all of the stories that can inspire us and also to drive change that is much needed in the world as we spread more dyslexia awareness. So Erica, once again, thank you. And we will see you all next time. We do have some more guests coming upcoming for season three. So we hope you'll stick around. All right, everybody have a great day. See you next time. (laughs) Bye everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.